Turn with me, if you will, to James chapter 5, as we proceed on toward the conclusion of this little book. James 5, we'll look at verses 14 and most of 15 today. I recently bought a new book, actually it was a book on a CD for my computer, for a computerized library, but anyway, it doesn't matter. I've recently brought a new book entitled Hard Sayings of the Bible. Guess what? Our text is one of the entries in the book. That always is such an encouragement when you begin to study something, to know that uh, this is something that others have uh, pondered and uh, have stirred up a lot of controversy, and certainly this text has done that. A lot of controversy, many differing opinions, uh, people have gone all kinds of directions with this text, but thanks to my new book, we will solve all the problems this very morning in the next half hour. <clears throat> well, let's read it. I want to force to look just at verses 14 and the first half of 15 down to the end of the sentence. I'll read verse 13. We already talked about it, but this is the context. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. We'll end there. <clears throat> Let me just focus our attention on two truths. They're very similar, but a slightly different. One fills out the other. The first truth is this. When you're weak and weary, you need the Lord. When you're weak and weary, you need the Lord. Now that sounds like the most innocuous statement that you can make, because we're all sitting in this room in a church worship service where we use familiar Christian words. But I mean that as a radical statement, as it would certainly sound if you said that in a hundred other places. For example, if you tell your friend, I am really feeling bad these days, I feel weak all the time, I can just about guarantee you that you will go through a lot of friends before anyone will tell you that you need to look to the Lord. Or if you say, I just feel down all the time, I don't know why, I, I almost feel like giving up on my family and my kids, my job, on, I, on everything. Again, many people would give you lots of advice before anyone mentions the Lord. But this morning, the Bible says that when you're weak and weary, what you need most is the Lord. Though we Christians give lip service to that, I think we've often drifted far away. You see, in our culture, we believe in science and technology. And nowhere have we been more, have we uh, had more impressive uh, technological advances than in the field of medical science, that field to which we so readily turn when we're weak and weary. We've come to believe that the medical profession has all the answers to our problems. If there's no cure today, somebody surely is working on it. If we can just hold on a little while, probably they will have a cure. And so we put our faith. It happens subtly, but we put our faith, we rest our hope, we focus our expectation 
uh, toward the genius of medical science and those who practice it. But this morning I declare to you that such an attitude flirts with idolatry. It is the most blatant form of humanism, for it attributes to ourselves, to our technology, to our genius, to our doctors, to man with a capital M, what belongs to God alone, the ability to heal and restore his creatures. Such a blind faith in science challenges whether we really believe that God is the author and sustainer of life as he declares himself to be. Brothers and sisters, when we're weak and weary, whatever the cause, what we need most, and in the long run, the only one who can help us, is the Lord. Oh, but medical technology is not the only view that competes with our allegiance these days. We now live in the days of naturalistic, holistic health. Along the way, some people have come to abhor the disastrous side effects of some of our own technology, and so we have looked to more natural sources for our healing and well-being. Better just leave things alone, let nature take its course, some would say. Uh, the evil enemy of our health is man's intrusion. Mother Nature knows what's best and how to care for herself, and we ought to uh, go with that. And so in all of our ailments, uh, we have been driven to a new breed of practitioner and a whole new array of alternative health solutions, which now are very much in vogue and being covered by our insurance policies and such. But, uh, but again, I must warn you that here, too, we are flirting with idolatry. It is no mistake that New Age theology permeates these ways. There is no Mother Nature who is wise and wonderful. The natural world is not pure and wholesome, and it's problem only that man has tried to come and uh, learn something, and discover something, and invent something. No, the world is God's, and he rules and sustains it, and given it into man's hand to order it. What we need is his wisdom and his care and the restoration which only he can give and not some other spirit, not some other natural, i.e. apart from God and his word and his ways, solution. When we're weak and weary, we need the Lord. You may be saying, well, I'm not that sick anyway, so... This doesn't really apply to me much. Well, let me tell you what the situation being addressed here is. Most people seem to presume that we're talking about a person who is desperately sick, lying on his deathbed, having exhausted all of his options, and now maybe in his desperate situation he ought to think about prayer. Well, certainly a person in that situation ought to think about prayer, but that's not necessarily the picture at all. There are two words which describe the situation here. In verse 14 says, if any one of you is sick, and in verse 15 speaks again of the sick person. But that's not the whole story. The word in verse 14 can mean sick, but it normally means weak or lacking strength. There is a different word, which is the normal word for disease or sickness. This is a big, broad word for weakness. 
And the word in 15 does not simply mean sickness either. It means weariness. Especially weariness of the mind. You see, this exhortation is not primarily written just to people on their deathbed, though they would certainly be weak and weary. This passage is given to all of us in all kinds of situations when we are at the end of our rope, when we feel acutely our weakness, and when we are sick and tired of having no relief. In other words, this passage is for you, for me. When we're weak and weary, we need the Lord. Well, this morning I'm not denying for a moment that God uses secondary means to help us. He's given us wonderful doctors and wise counselors and a host of miracle drugs, blessings of modern medicine. I'm not against those things. But I am telling you that in our weakness, in our time of weakness, and when we're weary and dog-tired of it all, we face a profound moment of truth. There we're confronted with the issue, who do we really trust? Where do we really find hope in our situation? Who do we turn to when the chips are down? Who can we not do without? In other words, what's the object of our faith? Upon whom are we willing to wait forever if necessary? When you don't understand what's happening, who do you believe does understand? When you're powerless, who do you believe has power? You see, this issue goes to the root of our thinking. It reveals something of how we, how we view the whole world and life. This morning I tell you with confidence when you are weak and when you are weary, what you need is not better technology primarily, not wiser doctors primarily, not some naturopathic solution primarily. What you need is the Lord. And he may use all kinds of things, but he is the only one who's worthy of our trust. He's the only one who's worthy of our expectation and our hope. So I call you to put your trust in him and call upon him and to rest in him and to walk in his ways and not turn away from him no matter what. But a text doesn't just tell us who we so desperately need. It tells us how we go about pursuing him. Which brings us to the second point. When you're weak and weary, you need the Lord. When you're weak and weary, you need God's church. When you're weak and weary, you need God's church. That statement probably shocks some of you, for even among those who believe in the Lord, the church is very often seen as, well, at best, optional. But this text tells us we cannot face our weakness and weariness alone. We need the Lord, certainly, and the way he chooses to come to us and to deal with us is through his church. Actually, we need the church for two things that are mentioned here. First of all, we need, we need the churches for prayer. Verse 14. If any of you are sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him. As we said the last time we looked at James, let's not get sidetracked. The point of this whole section is prayer. 
Prayer to the Lord who cares for his people. Prayer to the Lord who surrounds us with his promises. Prayer to the Lord who alone is worthy of our hope. And so when you're weak and weary, sick and worn out from the struggle, from the struggle where will you find help? Call the elders of the church to pray. Yes. Now let's notice a few things about this. He did not say call the apostles as they would have done in the first century. He said, call the elders. Now that tells us a crucial thing. That tells us that this is not a first century situation that was going on during the time that the apostles were alive, but then the ongoing church has different rules. Now, this is the normal, the normal uh, structure of God's people that God has gathered us into churches long after the apostolic age under the oversight of elders. It's in that context, he says, call the elders to pray. He also didn't say call the pastor. Oh, you can do that if you want. The pastor is one of the elders. As long as you understand that the pastor is only one of the elders. Or the other way of saying it is, as long as you understand that the elders have a pastoral role. Right along with the elder who does the preaching. So call any of the elders. This is their responsibility. By the way, that tells us something about the kind of elders we need, doesn't it? We don't need a council made up of the biggest donors or the most influential citizens or the most popular people. Nor do we need everyone to just take their turn doing a job that nobody likes. No, we need men of God who are called of God to this ministry. Men who understand that all of life and the world is, is God's. Men who know God's word and can shed the light of God's word on our situation. Men who know how to pray, who live in God's presence, who are filled with his spirit. Let me tell you, if you're dying and you're afraid and you're confused and you don't know what's happening to you, you do not want what many churches elect as elders to come to your house. Someone with a lot of popularity willing to take his turn. Oh no, the situation is much too important for that. You want someone who knows the Lord and can speak to him on your behalf and one who knows the Lord's word and can bring the light of it to your situation for your comfort. Call the elders. The fellow pastors. Then note that this text says, for you to call the elders. Folks, pastors and elders are not omniscient. I'm flattered that you would think that we are, but we're not. We don't know automatically what's happening with you. If you want the elders to come, you need to call. If you are in need and call, we will do everything possible to come. But just speaking for myself, if I come when you didn't call, well, maybe it's a casual social visit, or more likely, you're in trouble if I have to come looking for you. So if you didn't call and we didn't come, then don't bellyache about it. It was your God-given responsibility to call. You need help. And to expect prayer, spiritual help when the elders come. That's what they're there for. Not to pat you on the back, smooth ruffled feathers have spiritual ministry 
Why do you think God set it up this way? He doesn't say there. I'll give you my opinion, though, after a few years in the ministry. No matter how much a pastor or an elder cares about you in your weakness, we are just about powerless to help you until you care enough to seek help. Isn't that always how it is? You can't help people who don't think they need help. So when people don't care enough to seek help, pastors and elders are mostly wasting their time making calls. They become little social events. While people evade the problem that needs to be talked about, and certainly don't want you to embarrass them by reading the Bible or praying or something like that. Frankly, there are more important things to do then than that. When we're weak and weary, you need the prayer of the church. You need the prayer of godly elders on whom you can call. So call them. Second part of this is that when we're weak and weary, we need the church's, not just prayer, we need the church's care. When we're weak and weary, we need the church's care. Finally, we come to this most controversial part of our text. Look again at verse 14. If any of you sick, you should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. What on earth does God have in mind here? This anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, there are a lot of opinions, and everyone must hold his views lightly, for there's a lot of different strands of evidence. I heard Chuck Swindoll preach on this on the radio not too long. I heard part of a sermon. Boy, he was dogmatic, and I thought, I don't think you can be quite that dogmatic about that text. But then again, um, maybe you can. Let me give you some of the possibilities of what this might mean. And then tell you what I've come to understand through my study. Some believe this anointing with oil uh, is, a, is a practice of sacramental significance. Symbolic, ceremonial uh, significance. Indeed, the basis of the Catholic uh, Church's uh, doctrine of the sacrament of extreme unction, or last rites, is based on this. But it's not only the Roman Catholics who view this in some sacramental-like sense. Many Christians, many Protestants, would attach some healing efficacy to the anointing with oil, view it as having some symbolic power from God to do his work, that it's, in some kind of sense, a means of God's grace being administered to us. There's some problems with that, though. If this is another ordinance or another sacrament to be practiced in the church, along with the Lord's Supper, along with baptism, then we have to ask, what's its meaning? You see, there's no question at all of what the bread and the wine mean or what the water of baptism means. The Lord's made that crystal clear. But we're given no explanation of this practice. We have no record of the Lord instituting it, nor do we have any other instruction concerning how it's to be administered. We know nothing. How can it be so important as to be like a sacrament, a way that God ministers grace to us if he doesn't tell us anything about it? 
I don't think that's the best view. Another view is some have said, well, this is simply a medical procedure. That the application of oil was the best medicine that they knew. And certainly it's true that oil had a medicinal use in the first century. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? He's on the road to Jericho and he finds this man badly wounded and beaten, laying alongside the road. And he takes the man and what does he do? He pours oil and wine in his wounds. Well, what's he doing? He's administering first aid. He's, he's putting ointment uh, and a disinfectant, the best that he knew. And so some have said, well, that's what we have here in James 5. God is t telling us, I want you, in, in the time of sickness, in time of need, I want you to get the best medical help you can get, and I want you to pray like crazy. That has a certain appeal. Chuck Swindoll's dogmatic that that's what this means. There's some problems with that view, though. For it's the elders who are to anoint with oil. Does that mean that our elders need to be the best medical practitioners we know? I knew a church in uh, Philadelphia, a Korean church actually, that had 16 of its elders on its big church. 16 of the elders on its council were medical doctors. That's the only church I know that would uh, qualify for this, where you have elders who could come and give medical care. Another problem with that view is that if this is simply a medicinal use of oil, well, the truth is there are better Greek words for medicine than the word oil. So may I suggest a third option? This is what I believe the text means. I think that what the elders of the church are called to give here is practical care to go along with their prayer. Care to go along with the prayer. Let me tell you why. There are two different words in Greek, two very distinctly different words in Greek for the word anoint. They're both translated anoint in English. One is a very mundane word. It means to rub in or put on. It's the kind of word you'd use if you were putting on sunscreen or rubbing some lotion on your arm. Mundane word. The other is a very sacred word. It means anoint, like we think of anointing. It's used of the anointing of the high priest in the Greek Old Testament. It's used of the anointing of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. It's the root, the word is creo. It's a root from which we get Christos, Christ, the anointed one. Oh, it's a sacred, wonderful word. Now, which one of those words do you think is used here? The mundane word. James says, call the elders to sear some oil on you and pray. I'm sorry, that's the word that's used. He could have used that wonderful word for anoint. But he didn't. Also, the oil spoken of here is rather mundane. You know, I just finished reading the book of Exodus, and in Exodus 30, the Lord gave Israel a special formula for some scented, perfumed oil that was to be used to anoint the priest at their ordination. He gave them a little formula. And no one was ever allowed to make this formula of this scented oil or to use it for any other purposes. 
You couldn't on your 25th wedding anniversary make up some of the special oil of the Lord to give to your wife. It was forbidden. It was used only for the sacred purpose of ordaining, anointing the priest. But that's not this oil. This oil is, uh, is right out of the bottle. This is the oil, the oil that they used to cook with. It's the oil that they burned uh, as candles with a wick in it. It's the oil that they rubbed on their arms and legs to keep their skin moist in that dry desert climate. It's the oil that they dabbed on their head to, uh, for cosmetic purposes. It, it's plain, old-fashioned, grocery store variety olive oil. That's what this is. Words used hundreds of times in the Bible. Rub some olive oil on you. Doesn't sound near as holy now, does it? Now I can only find two other places where these two words, the mundane word for anoint and this common word for oil, are used together in the, Old, in the New Testament. One is in Mark 6, where we read that the disciples went out and anointed people with oil and healed them. It says virtually the same thing this text says. Probably has to do with the very, probably has the very same meaning, but it doesn't help us one bit to know what that meaning is. The other passage is Luke 7, 46. And that's instructive for us. This is the incident where Jesus goes to the home of the Pharisee. I think Simon was his name, wasn't it? I didn't look that up. Goes to the home of the Pharisee, and he comes in, and he's sitting there eating with the Pharisee. And this sinful woman comes during the meal, and she pours perfume on Jesus' feet. And this Pharisee is outraged that Jesus let this sinful woman even touch him. If you knew who she was, you wouldn't let her close to you. And do you remember Jesus' response? He said, you know, when I came in here, you didn't even put any oil on my head. But this woman has poured perfume on my feet. Now why should the Pharisee have put oil on Jesus' head? It's the exact same words. Why should he have anointed Jesus with oil? To use James's, the way we translate here. Why would he do that? Because that was the customary kind of care that you would express toward your guest, being a good host. It's, it, it, it's, it was in the category of washing his feet after he's been traveling on the dusty roads. It was a matter of taking care of the practical needs to make your guests comfortable in that culture. It's a way of expressing care for people that you love. The same exact phrase as here in James. But doesn't that make the most sense for James 5 as well? This is a passage on prayer. This isn't a passage that's instituting some new sacrament. But we all know that prayer is not to be cold and sterile. Prayer is to come in the context of, the context of loving, tender care. So for us in our culture, I don't think this passage has much, if anything, to do with oil. We don't use olive oil much except for cooking. We have other cultural expressions of how we care for people we love, how we make people comfortable when they're hurting. 
We might bring flowers. We might bring a meal. We might help straighten up the place. We might help someone who's really sick by bathing them, giving them a shave, or combing their hair. Little ways that we show tender mercy and pray for them. But you see, the truth is the same as it was back then when you're weak and weary. You need the church's care. The care of the Lord's appointed shepherds. Who, by the way, also poured oil on the sheep. (laughs) Well, finally, the underlying promise. Through this prayer and care of his church, God restores his people. Look at verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Once again, the Greek words are instructive. In the first part of 15, the word is actually save, not make him well. It's the word save. Prayer faith will save the weary person. At the end of the verse, the Lord will raise him up. These are not medical words promising that God will heal every sick person we pray for. God has never done that. Jesus himself did not heal every sick person in Galilee. We know by name some sick people that the Apostle Paul, who had a gift of healing, left behind. In fact, Paul himself talks about his weakness, his thorn in the flesh. Some people think was his eyesight. We don't know what it was. God did not heal him of that. No, this side of glory, sickness, and weakness will never be completely removed from God's people. But God does save his people. And he does lift us up out of the pit of despair and weariness, out of our burdens. He unfailingly cares for his own. And that's what this text promises us. And how does he do it? Through the prayer and the care of his church. We don't think much of the church in our day. Other things are so important, even in Christians' lives. And I've noticed a pattern, brothers and sisters. Most people, many people, not most necessarily, many people, when the tough times come, even though they've been accustomed to sitting in church every Sunday for years, they actually withdraw and hide out from the elders and the pastor and their brothers and sisters. Now how are the shepherds, how are the elders of the body to faithfully care and pray for you if you turn your back and run away? Don't you see, that's how unbelievers act. So if that's you, you need to hear this admonition from the Lord. When you're weak, weary, you desperately need the Lord. There's not some better help somewhere else. And when you're weak and weary, you will know the Lord through the prayer and the care of his church. Well, there's more to be said here. We didn't even get on to the complication of sin. But when I get to page 7 in my notes, I know it's time to quit. 
In closing, let me just suggest that the picture which we have been given here is a thing of beauty, which frankly is unlike a lot of the church experience that we've had. For you know, very often we have never known a church. I've been in the church since before I could remember. But we often have never even known a church where it was a family who really sought the Lord and trusted in Him in a way that's different than how we trust anything else, how we look to anything else for hope. Many of us have never known elders who were really worthy of the name. Men of God with pastoral concern who had a calling that they exercised, a calling from God. Many of us have never seen much real spiritual ministry. Not, not therapy or, 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 or busybody programs, but the ministry of the Word and the Spirit. Many of us have never seen much of that. Or we have seen some kind of ministry, but it's been hard and cold and sterile, not brought in the context of Compassion, tender care. And, and many of us have never seen members of the body who eagerly submit themselves, who even seek out the help of the overseers, the shepherds, the elders. And therefore many of us have seen churches that are pitifully weak and broken and people never recover. But that's not the picture here. This is a beautiful picture of how God's people care for one another and how the shepherd shepherd and how the Lord raises up the weary and weak to serve him again. This is what the church is supposed to be. If we've seen something else, then it's bogus. By God's grace, let's be this kind of church. Amen. Dear Father, thank you for your word. And even though you have given us these uh, little problem passages that are hard to understand at first and make us dig and think hard and study across 2,000 years of different cultures and different languages that we don't speak. We thank you, Lord, that uh, hidden here uh, are these wonderful truths of what you want us to be and what you've promised to be for us. Help us to learn to live it out here. Lord, I'm sure that there are among our number those who could, uh, by any imagination, uh, would be considered weary and weak. And so, Lord, may these not just be hollow words, but I pray that you would give us a heart for one another in that situation. And I pray especially for the shepherds of this church, that you would give us a shepherding heart one that trusts you and looks to you quickly and holds you before one another. The great shepherd who cares for your sheep enough to give your life for us. Oh Lord, we've only just begun to learn what this means. But for the sake of those who are weak, weak and weary, I pray that we would learn quickly and that you would save and bind up and raise up again those who are hurting among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.